Thanks, Dave. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 24, Romans 9, 24. While you're turning there, I want to share a little illustration with you that I think will make sense with uh, this text this morning. Uh, I love watching the Olympics when that comes on TV, okay? I don't care anything about the Winter Olympics because I live in Texas. So people getting gold medals for skiing or jumping on skis or long-distance skiing or shooting on skis, none of that has relevance to me, but I like the Summer Olympics. Those are things that I understand, running and jumping and these kind of things. It's also a time where everybody becomes really patriotic. So no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you gather together to see whose country is best. And so I enjoy that with the, uh, with the Olympics. Now, one of the things that I've always thought would make the Olympics so much more fun is for each event to just throw some random guy in that event who's never done it before. So you can see how talented these athletes are. So right now, if you're watching a bunch of guys run fast, you don't really know how fast they're running. But if you were just to take some guy who's just named like Larry and he's got like a beer gut or something and had him just huffing alongside him, you would see what incredible athletes they are, okay? Now, there's a few sports where I think that that would be especially fun. Number one, swimming, right? So in addition to somebody like Michael Phelps, who's an incredible athlete, just throw some guy in the pool who doesn't really know how to swim. And as he's half drowning, half doggy paddling to the side, he's just getting lapped. How much money would you pay to watch that? I would pay a lot. Or hurdles. Have somebody run hurdles who's never run hurdles. And as those other athletes are just running and jumping over it, this guy runs up to it with like two feet and just kind of jumps and falls over it. And then he gets to the next one and he's psyching himself up and he jumps and he falls over that one. That would be amazing. Everybody's already done. They finished the race and everybody's just watching this guy stumble over hurdles. But I think the events that would be the funniest are the events related to gymnastics, okay? So, have you ever seen trampoline, right? These guys from like China will get on there and they'll jump on the trampoline and they'll do like 100 flips or whatever. Just take a guy who hasn't trained and have him jump on a trampoline. He'll just kind of bounce, try to go for a flip, do a belly flop, and everybody claps, right? Or vault, okay? Not pole vaulting, that would be awesome too. But vault is where they run as fast as they can, they hit this little spring box, and then they do some flips in the air and land. Have someone who's never done that do it. Have them run, hit that box, just tuck into a ball and see what happens, okay? But the all-time best would be the open floor routine, okay? Do you know what that is? What you do is you have these these gymnasts, and they will do like flips and backhand springs and little leaps, and they'll take that little ribbon dancer thing or whatever. Just give that to a guy who's never done it. Watch him try to do a cartwheel. Watch him try to do one of those little plie jumps or whatever. It would be incredible, okay? Now, I say all that to say that there is more to being an Olympic athlete than just being on the team. In this scenario that I've devised, you could be somebody who had an Olympic jersey, who was on the Olympic team, but really was not an Olympic athlete, okay? And that's true today, even with actual Olympic athletes. Just because you're on the the Olympic team, you can be removed. If you're caught cheating, you can be kicked out by the Olympic Commission. If you're doing drugs, you can be kicked out by the Olympic Commission, etc., And also, you can join someone else's Olympic team. So the rules are, I looked it up this week, that you have to wait three years after you've competed for another country before you can join a different country's Olympic team. Now, I say that because what the Apostle Paul is going to say is when it comes to the people of God, when it comes to Israel, not all who are Israel are Israel. 
Just because you were once part of that Olympic team, that doesn't mean that nothing has changed. You can be removed from the Olympic team by being unfaithful and not knowing Christ, or you can be added to that Olympic team, even if you're a Gentile, even if you were not originally part of that team. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is going to explicate today as we look at this text here in Romans 9. Now, before we get into it, let me just open with a word of prayer, but I want to do something a little bit different. I want us just to take a second just to repent for any sin. Sin blinds us to the truth of God's Word. Sin, uh, sin makes us stupid. It was not wise for the devil to rebel against God, but what does sin do? Sin corrupts your thinking. So I want us to just take a second where uh, we're just praying and asking God to forgive us if we have any known sin in our life, and I'm going to do the same. Just to confess before you, the church congregation, I feel as though I've been uh, very far from God this week. I feel I've been walking in some pride, and so I need to repent as well. So let me give you a second just to pray, and then I'll open us in a word of prayer, and we'll get into this text. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy towards us. We thank you that though we fail over and over and over again, it's as if your grace is just infinite as you are. And so we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. Uh, I just pray that you would send the Spirit and he would uh, powerfully illumine our hearts as we uh, read this inspired word. And so we love you. We thank you. We ask for grace. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, look with me at uh, verse 24. Now, verse 24 might look like a strange place to start in your English Bible, okay? It looks like we're starting in the middle of the sentence. Let me remind you that originally, when the New Testament is written in Greek, it's written in all capital letters, what are called majuscules, and there's no spacing and no punctuation marks, okay? So any place where there are quotation marks or a period, especially chapter and verse headings in your Bible, those are added by English editors to help uh, make reading the Bible a little bit easier, but those things are not originally in the text. And so verse 24 in Greek actually starts a new thought. So it actually can start a new sentence, which is why we're starting here in verse 24. And let me catch you up on where we are here in Romans. So this makes sense here in Romans 9. Uh, I was talking with one of our elders, Wade, recently, and he mentioned something that the former pastor here, Jerry Hallbrook, used to say, which I think was very, very fascinating. What Jerry would say is he said, people only have a problem with election and predestination when it comes to the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. God chooses Noah and his family and not other families. God chooses Abraham out of all the other people that he could have chosen to, make, uh, to, to send these descendants. He chooses, uh, I, he chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. He chooses uh, Jacob and not Esau. He chooses Israel to be his elect nation and not all the other nations. He chooses Moses to deliver uh, Israel out of Egypt. He chooses David and he unchooses Saul. Over and over and over again, you get this idea that part of what it means to believe in the Christian God is not that you believe some abstract doctrine of election when it comes to salvation, but the very God we worship is a choosing God. He is not egalitarian. He does not treat everyone the same. He treats everyone justly, but he does not treat everyone the same. And so far, what's, what's been going on is Paul has been trying to answer this question. This is the central question in Romans 9 through 11. God promised salvation to the Jews, but most Jews have not believed in Jesus and been saved. So therefore, has God been unfaithful to his promise? And Paul's answer over and over and over again is no. Because salvation has never been dependent upon ethnicity, it's been dependent upon God's grace. Paul gave an example of that from the patriarchs when he talks about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. 
He gives an example of that from the Exodus with Pharaoh. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. And today, Paul is going to give an example of these things with, by quoting the prophets, by quoting specifically Hosea and Isaiah. So with that in mind, let's get into verse 24. It says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What does verse 24 mean? It means this. Election, salvation, God's love is based only upon God's mercy. He saves by grace alone some who are ethnically Jewish and some who are ethnically non-Jewish. Okay? That's what he's saying. Look again at verse 24. Look at the first part. Even us. Who is this us in verse 24? To whom does that refer? Well, to see that, we have to look up a few verses. Look up in your Bible. We're in verse 24. Look up to verses 22 and 23, and we're going to throw it on the screen for you as well. Romans 9, 22 through 23 says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay? That us here in verse 24 are these vessels of mercy. Okay, so when you see us, that, that's referring to Christians, that's referring to believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile, it's talking about vessels of mercy now here in this text throughout the rest of these verses, okay? And it says, even us whom he has called, notice that it's God who's doing the saving, not us, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So let me ask you this question. Why does he say that? What is the big deal in this passage between separating Jew and Gentile? In fact, you see this a lot throughout Romans and Galatians and a lot of Paul's writings. He's always talking about Jews and Gentiles. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Not everyone has a religion. There are people who will say they're non-religious, which I actually think is a religious claim and everybody does have a religion, but everyone can agree that everybody has a worldview. Are you with me? A worldview is, wait for it, a way you see the world, okay? Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a view of God, even if you believe that God doesn't exist. That's your view of God. That's your worldview. Everyone has a view on what makes something right or wrong, even if you're a relativist and you don't think that there's an objective standard of right and wrong, that's still your worldview. Everybody has a view of what happens to you when you die, even if you think that you just take a big dirt nap and nothing happens to you when you die, that is your worldview. Now, one of the, one of the fundamental elements of a worldview is how you classify people, how you classify in-groups and how you classify out-groups, how you distinguish people, okay? So I'll give you a few of these. If your worldview is one of James Cone or Malcolm X, you think that the primary thing that divides people is race, black and white. If you're Simone de Beauvoir or Betty Friedan or a feminist, you think the primary thing that distinguishes people is gender, male and female. You'll have a tendency to see the world through this lens of male and female. If you are Leonardo Boff, Gustavo Gutierrez, or someone who holds to what's called liberation theology, you think that the primary distinction between people is socioeconomic, rich versus poor. Okay? If you are Voltaire or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you think that it's social progress, pre-enlightenment culture, if you're Rousseau, or post-enlightenment culture, if you are Voltaire. If you are Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, or a communist, you think the primary distinction between people is economic class disparity, the factory owner versus the factory worker, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. If you are Plato, Aristotle, or a Greek philosopher, you think that it's wisdom. You divide people into two camps, educated and uneducated. If you're Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, or an American patriot, you think that it's governmental. You divide the world into those who are free versus those who are under a monarch. If you're Charles Sanders Peirce or John Dewey, you think that it's pragmatism. 
You divide the world into what works practically and who produces the most results versus who doesn't. If you're a Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, or a postmodernist, you think that what really divides people is power. You'll have a tendency to divide the world into oppressor and oppressed. That's not a Christian worldview. That's a postmodern worldview, okay? If you're a 21st century American, you think that it's partisan. You'll divide people into liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, etc. Now, let me ask you this question. Every worldview has one of these things. If you are a Jew in the first century, how do you primarily divide people? Into the categories of Jew and Gentile. That's the way you see the world. If you're a Jew in the first century, there's only two kinds of people. There is Israel. There are Jews, and they worship Yahweh. And then there are pagans, and they worship the devil. That's it. Everybody belongs to one of those two extreme categories. You're either Jewish and you worship God, or you belong to any other Gentile nation. Gentile just means non-Jew, basically. Any other Gentile nation, and you worship demons. There's a hard and fast line there. Now, here's what Paul is going to have to say. How does God primarily divide people? Does he do it by race or gender or socioeconomic status or oppressor and oppressed or Jew and Gentile? He's going to say, no, 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 no. The way that Christians have to view the world are by these two classes of people. Christians and non-Christians. That's how we view the world, because that's the way God views the world. God sees everyone in two classes, those whom he's redeemed and adopted, Christians, and those who are not Christians. And what Paul's going to say here is the dividing line in humanity is Christian and non-Christian, that God saves from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It's not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, that's a racial distinction. There is neither slave nor free, that's a socioeconomic distinction. There is no male and female. That's a gender distinction. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to break down their thinking of thinking Jew and Gentile, and he's going to say, no, 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 no. Here's what there really is, elect and non-elect. God has mercy on people just because he's merciful, not because if you're Jewish, you just have some sort of right to claim his mercy, okay? Verses 25 through 26. As indeed, he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Here Paul quotes Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 to show that God has always been about saving people who weren't in a relationship with him. That's what kind of God we serve. We serve a God who saves people that don't deserve salvation and who saves people who are not in a relationship with him, okay? Now, before I unpack this, I need to explain something going on, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the text. So, I looked up this last week some names that people are naming their kids in 2018, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but what we name our kids changes over time, okay? So, I'll give you an example. If you know a child who's five years old and younger named Gary, go ahead and raise your hand. No? No baby Garys? Okay. Why not? Gary's a great name because names change over time. It's cool to name your kids something that was your grandparents' name, Emma, but it's not cool to name your kids whatever your parents' name was, okay? And so names change over time. And so I looked up some uh, interesting names that people are naming their kids in 2018, and these are all actual names that I'm about to give you. Are you ready? There's a relevance to this. This has a point, so bear with me. Bear Grylls. You know who Bear Grylls is? The survival expert, ex-SAS, who like eats snakes and stuff. His son's name is Huckleberry. Huckleberry Grills, okay? It gets worse. Here's another one that people, there are actually people named this. I'm unique. 
That is the word I'm with the apostrophe and the word unique slammed together. I'm unique, okay? The irony of that name is if too many people start having that name, it starts to lose its relevance, okay? Here's another one. There is a girl in the United States named Brittany Shakira Beyonce. Her mom loved pop music, and she's like, which one of these singers should I name her after? How about all three, okay? Brittany Shakira Beyonce. There was a little boy. There are actually multiple little boys named America. Not America, but you know when you're like, America, and you shoot your gun up in the air, that name, okay? Multiple boys in the United States named America. There are several little girls named Harley Quinn. Harley's a cute name. Harley Quinn is the Joker's girlfriend from Batman, okay? Now, this next one made me kind of upset when I read it. I felt uh, sad for the kids. There are five kids right now in the United States with the first name SpongeBob. A reference to SpongeBob SquarePants. You know him. He lives in a pineapple under the sea. He's a Nickelodeon cartoon. Now, here's the problem. If I'm an employer and I'm looking through resumes, I don't care if you have a PhD from Cambridge. If I see SpongeBob as your name, I just throw it right in the trash, okay? You have other things to be doing than being successful. Several girls are named L'Oreal. If you think, isn't that a makeup company? Yep, L'Oreal. Uh, one little girl is named, now this one's just over the top. This one's too cutesy for me. Fifi Trixie Bell. That is too much. If she was an actual woodland fairy or like a sprite, that name would still be too much. It's like cotton candy smush cake. It's just, it's too much. Several boys have the name Billion. I've known several people named Cash, but I haven't known any uh, Billions. And then my favorite one is this. There was a couple where the dad was dead set on naming his daughter Garden, which is a cute name for a little girl, Garden. But the mom was dead set on naming the daughter Olive. You know where this is going. So this little girl's name is Olive Garden Smith, okay? I guarantee you, when they took her home from the hospital, the first thing they said to her was, when you're here, you're family, okay? Now here's why I tell you this. The prophet Hosea, okay? Do you know who Hosea is? If you've never read the book of Hosea, I highly recommend it, especially the first four chapters. God goes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who will cheat on you. The text literally says a woman of whoredom. I want you to marry a woman who's going to cheat on you, and when she does cheat on you, you pursue her back because it shows the way that I pursue unfaithful Israel. So you marry this woman who will cheat on you, and when she does, you go to her lover's beds, and you pull her out of that, and you give them money, and you redeem her, and it shows how I pursue unfaithful Israel. Now, Hosea is told to give his kids three weird names. That's why I mentioned that. They have three very strange names. Let me mention them to you, okay? First of all, Hosea and his wife, her name's Gomer, they have a, ch a son, and his name, he's to have the name Yisrael, which is a reference to Jezreel, Okay? Jezreel is a reference to Israel's idolatry in Baal worship. The Canaanites worshiped a god named in Hebrew, it's Baal, but in English we typically say Baal. And this is a reference to that. This is a reference to evil kings like Ahab who are all about Baal worship. So he's like, name your first son, idol worship. Then he has a daughter, and her name is Loruhamah, which means no mercy. How about that for a little girl's name? Mercy is an adorable name for a little girl. No mercy, she's going to grow up and shank you. 
She's going to stab you. She's going to be tough, okay? So they have a little girl named Lo Ruhamah, no mercy, because it says that God will not have mercy on Israel anymore. And then he has a third child, a son, and his name is Lo Ami, which means not my people, because Israel is not God's people, and he is not their God, okay? So in addition to having to marry this woman who will cheat on him, he has to name his kids names of judgment. Name your kids idol worship, no mercy, and not my people, because I will have nothing to do with you anymore, O Israel. It is a strong text. But what eventually you see in Hosea is that God remarries Israel, that he allures her, that he goes back and wants, who he once called no mercy, he now gives mercy to, and he pours his love on his people. Now, here's the question. Originally, this text in Hosea is about God redeeming Jews. So how can the apostle Paul use this about God redeeming Gentiles? It seems to be the opposite of what, uh, what the text is originally about. Does this make sense? So originally, Hosea is about Israelites being saved, and here the Apostle Paul is using that to say that God saves Gentiles. Is the Apostle Paul using it out of context? Does he misunderstand what's going on? No. Here's what's going on. Ready? When God gets rid of Israel, they become Gentiles. They have the same status as the Gentile nations. When God says, you're not my people anymore and I'm not your God, it's like they're Gentiles. And so when God redeems them back, it's like he's redeeming Gentiles. That's Paul's point. Paul is saying that this text can be used about Gentiles because when God kicks out his covenant with Jews, they become Gentiles, and then he redeems them back. What Paul is simply saying is this. Even from the Old Testament, salvation has always been dependent upon God's mercy and not dependent upon ethnicity. It's always been based on God's grace, okay? And by the way, the Apostle Paul is fine applying texts that were originally about Old Testament Israel and making them about the church. He sees the church as, quote, the Israel of God in Galatians. He's fine seeing the church as the new Israel, okay? Now, I want you to see something else here in this text, okay? Let's read through uh, 25 to 26 again. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God, okay? I want you to see two things about this. First, I want you to see that God's intent has always been to redeem the world. His intent has always been to redeem Gentiles. There is a whole system of theology out there called dispensationalism, which I do not hold. And dispensationalism holds a bunch of weird things, but one of the big things that they hold is that God is primarily about Israel, and then for, he, he lets in Gentiles, he lets in the church, and then he's back to Israel, okay? So if God were to speak a sentence, it would be something like this. Israel, 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 parentheses, the church and Gentiles. Israel, 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 Israel. God's basically all about Israel. The church kind of gets in in the middle, but it's, it's kind of an Israel sandwich. Israel, the Gentiles, Israel, okay? I think that the Bible teaches the exact opposite thing. I think God is about redeeming the whole world, and it's Israel that is that parenthesis. It's Israel, which is the vehicle through whom God sends a Messiah so that God might redeem people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So if God were to speak a sentence, he would say, whole world, whole world, whole world, use Israel for a time, whole world, whole world, whole world, whole world, whole world, whole world, okay? That's what I think is going on. Meaning, what Paul is trying to say is God has always been about redeeming those who are non-Jewish. Look in your Old Testament. There were always those like Rahab who were not ethnically Jewish that could be incorporated into the people of God by faith, okay? 
Now, I want you to see another thing here in verses 25 through 26. I have a little, uh, little chart for you. I think we're going to throw it up on the screen. Look at the identity that it's going to talk about here. Before you come to know Christ, your identity is what's in the left column. Not God's people, verse 25. Not beloved, verse 25. And again, not God's people, just in case you missed it, verse 26. But through Christ, by coming to know Christ, your status before God changes, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and your identity is no longer these things. Your identity is my people, verse 25, beloved, verse 25, or sons of the living God, sons and daughters, meaning adopted children of the living God, okay? So let me say something about this real quick. How you view yourself will change everything about your life, everything about your actions. Your identity is so, so, so important, okay? You will act according to your identity. Do you walk off of a building and expect not to fall? No, because your identity is not that of a bird, okay? But your identity, everybody has their identity in something. They have their identity in something. Here's a great way where you can find what your identity is in. Let me ask you this question. What, if it were taken from you, would make you feel like life is not worth living? If it's your children, your identity is not in Christ, but rather in being a parent. If it's your job, your identity is in your job. If it's your spouse, your identity is in your marriage. If it, through what lens do you evaluate world issues? When you look at something in the news, through what lens do you use? That will tell you what your identity is. Now, here's what you need to understand. Biblically, your identity has to be found in Christ or you will never have joy. You will never have peace. You will never have that rest. Christ is the only identity you can have that cannot be taken from you. Everything else can be taken. Some people find their identity in their job. And guess what happens? They lose their job and their life isn't worth living. Some people find their identity in their spouse. Their spouse cheats on them or leaves them and life isn't worth living. Some people find their identity in their kids. A kid passes away, which is a terrible tragedy that should be mourned, but it's not your ultimate identity. Some people find their identity in their uh, sexual preferences, that instead of saying this is merely an act, they will say, this is who I am. It's what makes me, me. What this text is saying is as a Christian, your identity is not found in any of those things. Your identity is found in whether or not you belong to one of these two groups. Are you those who are not beloved, not God's people? Or are you those who are beloved in God's people? Understanding that is everything. Understanding your identity in Christ is everything. You miss that, you will always be insecure. You will always be insecure. Verses 28 through 27. I'm sorry, 27 through 28. Now he's going to switch. He was in Hosea, now he's going to talk through Isaiah. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This is a reference to Isaiah 10, through 23, which says this, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Okay, so here's what's going on. Paul is saying you are elected, you are saved, you are given salvation only by God's grace not by ethnicity, not by heritage, not by these kind of things. The first proof he gives from the Old Testament is to say that Gentiles would be saved. The second proof he's now going to give from the Old Testament is to say not all Jews will be saved, okay? So he's kind of hitting this issue from two sides. For those that think, oh, I'm saved, I'm good, I'm a Jew, God and I are cool, he's saying, no, no, I don't think you've read the Old Testament. Not only will Gentiles be saved, but those who reject the Messiah will be cut off. They are like branches that have been cut off from the rich root of the olive tree of David, 
Now, look at this phrase here, only a remnant. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, meaning though there are a lot of Jews, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Jews would have thought that most Jews will be saved and maybe a few Gentiles. But what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's reversing that. He's saying a lot of Gentiles will be saved and not very many Jews. Okay? This would have been a very offensive, very powerful thing for Paul to say. Here's what he's trying to shoot down. If you were Jewish in the first century, you assumed that you were part of God's people on a spiritual level just because you were Jewish. If you think of Old Testament Israel, think of it as a circle, okay? Think of Israel as a circle, a big circle, and then think of there being a circle within that circle, okay? So there's a big circle, that's the ethnic nation of Israel, but that didn't make you saved. You had to be one that was actually faithful to Yahweh. You had to be one that actually loved God. You had to be one that actually trusted Him by faith. So you had to be spiritual Israel. You couldn't just be physical Israel, and so that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing out, okay? You had to belong to that remnant. You couldn't just be ethnically Jewish and worship Baal. You had to belong to that remnant. So I'll give you a little example. We've begun catechizing my son, okay? He's three years old. Catechizing is where you basically ask a series of question. It's a question and answer format, a way of teaching the Bible and teaching theology, right? So we'll ask him something like, uh, you know, who made Judah? God. And he'll answer these questions, and it's a way for him to learn the Bible. Now, sometimes he crushes it. He gets the answer right. But sometimes he says something that is completely wrong. So the other day I said, what did God make? And the answer is everything that's been made. I said, what did God make? And he said, Jesus. And I said, no, no, no. No, no, no. Jesus has always existed, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He was in the beginning, etc. He's always existed. And then I said, Judah, who should you love the most? And he said, Daddy. And I thought, no, maybe. Maybe. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm flattered. But the answer to that question is God, okay? And sometimes he'll just repeat an answer from memory, even though it has nothing to do with the question. So I asked him, what is the church? And the answer is God's friends. That's how we've defined it for a little kid, God's friends. So, but what he gave is he gave the answer for what is the Bible. So I said, what is the church? And he said, God's true word. And I'm like, you're just trying to get a piece of candy at this point. You haven't gotten it. So I called on my wife, Katie. I said, let me ask uh, mommy some questions so that you can watch her answer these questions. And Katie wasn't paying attention because she was feeding my daughter, Isla. And I said, uh, mama, how many gods are there? And she goes, three. And I'm like, no. <laughs> No, there's one God, three persons. Pay attention. I'm just raising a whole family of heretics, apparently. And so uh, we had a good laugh, okay? We had a good laugh. Now, when we're teaching Judah the Bible, we have to be really careful that we don't make him think that he's already a Christian because he's not. The largest group of lost people to us right now in this room meets just down the hall in our children's area, okay? So what we want to do is we want to teach him about Christ we want to encourage him to love Christ. We don't talk about hell yet. He's three. We're not trying to make him weird, okay? But we are trying to let him know that there is a difference between him and mommy and daddy. So he'll say things like, Jesus healed my heart. And we have to say, Jesus healed daddy's heart. Jesus healed mommy's heart. And we hope that one day when you get older, Jesus will heal your heart too. Because we're trying to encourage him in the faith, though we recognize that he doesn't know Christ yet, okay? We don't want him just assuming that he's a Christian, because that leads to dangerous things. That's what's going on here in this text. The Jews would have assumed, because I'm Jewish, I'm in. My last name is Goldstein. I've got curly hair. I've got this sweet, these sweet phylacteries. They're enormous. They're awesome. I'm in. And Paul is going to have to say, no, 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 no. You have to belong to the remnant. You have to be faithful. You can't just be a physical Jew. You can't just belong to that outer circle. 
You have to be a spiritual Jew. You have to be one that actually knows and loves God. And that's what he's trying to shoot down is this kind of Jewish presumption. Now, I want you to see something else here. This is fascinating. Let's look in verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. What is this a reference to? Okay. What the Apostle Paul is trying to say is this. Justice, the way that God defines it, is that he uses an equal standard to judge everyone, Jew or Gentile. Okay? So so let let me back up. There are three main ways that people define justice. Okay? The first way that people define justice is they say there has to be an equal starting point between two people. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that somebody grows up in a home with two parents. Their parents are very wealthy. Their parents are able to send them to college. Now imagine the example of perhaps a poor white kid in a trailer who has a mom that works three jobs or whatever. Though they have an equality of opportunity, technically everything is open to both of them. They don't really have equality because one starts so far behind the curve than the other one. You with me so far? That's one way that people define justice. Another way that people define justice is that there has to be an equality of outcome. Not an equality of opportunity, but an equality of outcome. That's what you get in uh, communism, right? Justice looks like, at the end of the day, people having similar goods, having about the same kind of things, okay, where everybody's kind of leveled out. That's the idea of equality of result, not just equality of opportunity, but equality of result, okay? The third way to define justice, and I, by the way, think this is the only way the Bible ever defines it, is to say that justice means that everyone is judged by the same standard, which is truth. It doesn't take into account what came before or what comes after. It takes into account, as you're standing before the judge, that the same standard is used for everybody. That's what Paul's saying. The Jews would have assumed that when I stand before God, there will be a more lax judgment for me because I'm Jewish. And Paul is saying, that's not justice. You've seen the statue we've mentioned before of Lady Justice. She's got to go into a courthouse. You'll always see this. She has a sword in her hand because she brings judgment. She has scales in the other hand. And what's over her eyes? A blindfold. She doesn't care where you're from. She doesn't care about your education. She doesn't care what you look like. She just cares which way those scales tip. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's trying to shoot down this Jewish presumption. Let me give you a few examples of this kind of justice from the Old Testament. Exodus 23, 2-3. You shall not fall in with the many. By the way, always be aware if you find yourself on the side of the majority. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Think about that. The the poor man starts behind the curve. He doesn't start on the same equal footing as the rich man, and yet the text is going to say before God, he just cares about justice. He just cares about truth. Truth stands equally over everybody, okay? Truth stands equally over everybody. 2 Chronicles 15, 13. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. The text doesn't care about age or gender when it comes to justice. It just says, is this true or is it not true? But my personal experience, God doesn't care. Is it true or is it not true? That's the way the Bible will define justice. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Don't err on the side of the rich or the poor. Don't err on the side of the uh, one in power or not in power. Don't err on the side of any of these things. Just look at truth. That's all we care about. Paul's already said something similar to this. Romans 2, 9 through 11. This is really the background for what Paul is saying here. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So I say all of that to say this. Paul is saying, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're saved. You have to belong to the remnant. But I'm Jewish. God will judge me special. No, he won't. Justice to God is truth. It's which way do those scales tip. That's how everyone will be judged, Jew or Gentile. That's what Paul's saying. And he mentions a scary word of judgment in verse 28 by saying, and for those that are not part of that remnant, those that do not know Christ, there is swift judgment. There's swift judgment. Verse 29. Let's get some more judgment, and then there'll be some encouraging things here in verse 29. And he continues with Isaiah, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's what verse 29 means. Israel deserved the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah, but in his mercy, God had preserved a remnant. So there is hope. Everybody in here know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes or no? Good, because I don't want to have to tell it, okay? You can read it on your own if you want to read it. But Sodom and Gomorrah are these, uh, these cities that are absolutely destroyed by God. Why are they destroyed? Well, biblically, they're actually destroyed for two reasons, not just one. According to Genesis 19, it's due to their inhospitality. They don't take in these strangers... And then when the strangers are there, they try to sexually assault them, okay? So it has to do with inhospitality. We never talk about that in the church. Maybe we should. That's a big implication of Genesis 19. But it's not just that reason that it's destroyed. They're also destroyed for sexual immorality, okay? Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, that's the phrase Paul uses in Romans 1 for homosexuality, by the way, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, okay? But Sodom and Gomorrah are these cities that were absolutely destroyed by God because of their depravity. And here's what the text is saying. Had God not been merciful to us, Israel would be the same thing as Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way that we say Sodom and Gomorrah and we link the two together, we would say Sodom and Gomorrah and Israel. He's saying our only hope, though we deserved judgment, was that God is faithful. This is a very God-centered text. Let Let me say it stronger. If you go to a bunch of other evangelical churches in the DFW area today, you will hear a man-centered sermon. You will have a sermon about you. the, The pastor will get up and he will give you five ways to be happy though married. He will give you seven ways that you can have your best life now. He will talk about your experience and your felt needs and the things that you care about and the things that you're really interested in and the things that you can use in your practical life. All of Christian history, though, and including what we do at Parkway, is instead we talk about God. We have a God-centered message. We have a Christ-centered message. It's not about us. Let's talk about who God is and what God wants and what God cares about and what God likes and what God hates. That's where you find life. The irony is if you follow Christ, you will also get the things you're looking for, meaning, fulfillment, joy, etc. If you lose your life, you will gain it. If you try to seek your own joy apart from Christ, you will neither get that nor Christ. So by doing what's best for God, you also ironically end up doing what's best for you as well. You as a human were made to worship. You are at your highest when you are worshiping, okay? And so what this text is saying is, though mankind has blown it, though the Jews have blown it, though the Gentiles have blown it, though everyone could just be condemned by God, because God is merciful, there's grace. He decides to pull as a brand from the fire some. He could damn all. If God damned every single person, he would be totally just. But the fact that he saves any, and not only any, but so many, is just an overwhelming picture of his grace. Now, here's how I want to end today. I mentioned from Hosea 
this story of this guy whose wife cheated on him and he had to pursue her back and he had his weird names like uh, I'm Unique and stuff with his kids. Now I want to end this way, okay? I want to end by reading a little section of Hosea. And in this section, what happens is God is going to pursue Israel, though Israel has been an unfaithful bride, and he is going to reverse this curse that he's pronounced on her. It is a beautiful picture of God's heart. It is a beautiful picture of salvation. It is a beautiful picture of what Christ does to people today, Jew or Gentile, for those that decide to follow Christ, okay? Let me read it to you. It's kind of long, so we're going to put it on the screen. It'll be several slides. Hosea 2, 14 through 23. Listen to this. Therefore, behold, I, that's God, I will allure her, Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. The valley of Acre was a place of judgment. Instead, it will be a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me Ishi in Hebrew, my husband. And no longer will you call me Bali, my Baal, my master. What he's saying is you'll call me husband and not just master. And then there's a play on words in verse 17. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now look at this next part here. He's going to address these three names that were given to these kids. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer uh, the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will show, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. It is a hope of joy and restoration. That in a sense in Hosea, God divorces Israel. But that's not his final word for Israel. His final word for Israel is restoration. His final word for Israel is perseverance. He's saying, though you have been unfaithful, though I've made you for a time not my people, you are my people. Let's pray as the volunteers helping serve communion come up to the front. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We confess that we are like Gomer from the book of Hosea, that we uh, cheat on you. You've given us life. You've given us grace. You've married us. We've gone through a marriage ceremony at our baptism, and yet every time we sin, we take a new lover. Every time we sin, we commit spiritual adultery against you, and yet you've been gracious, yet you've shown mercy. Yet the way you judge is not based upon uh, ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status. You don't choose the best and the brightest, but rather you choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You take those who are not your people and you make them your people. And so we thank you for this. We thank you for this text. As we now transition into communion, we ask that you would bless this time. In Christ's name, amen.